Thank you, Stephen, Elaine, choir. Before we uh, get started in our message, a few announcements. Remember that this, not this Monday, but next Monday is our five-day Bible club, also known as VBS. So we want to sign up all your kids and grandkids, kids in the neighborhood. It's going to be a five-day fun event, and it's from two to four, starting not this Monday, but next Monday. And also, before we begin, let us remember the people of Orlando. Let's say a special prayer for them. As many of you have heard, probably around 20 or so died and, uh, in a mass shooting. So we just want to remember the people of Orlando that God will reach out to the family and friends and comfort them and give them peace. So let's pray together. Father, we know that we live in a world that's full of suffering and full of things like this where people lose their lives. And uh, Lord, we just want to pause for just a moment. And we want to remember the people of Orlando, God, for everyone affected by this incident, God. And God, I want to ask and pray that you would somehow use this horrible situation to bring a lost world to Christ. We ask and pray that your blessing would be upon this service. And Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word and that somehow through your word that we would be changed, encouraged, and renewed. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said. So we are going to be in 1 Peter. If you guys will turn, we are in chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 13. One of the advantages of going through books of the Bible is uh, the passage we're going to look at today, most pastors would skip over because it's one of the hardest passages in the Bible, and I'll explain why in a bit. But um, the advantages of going through passages is it forces you to handle all of God's Word, even the portions that are sometimes harder to understand. So today we're going to pick up in the theme of suffering. And suffering is a subject we don't like to talk about. But it's evident in our world today as, as you watch the news and as you see things that go on in your personal life. About this time last year, I started having heart problems and I didn't know what was going on. I'm 34 at the time. I was 33. And I'm like, I'm too young to have heart problems. This Something's wrong. And it got so bad to where I felt almost like I was going to pass out and my heart was beating irregularly and I'm just like, this is, this is not good. So... I began to have some people pray for me, and I had one friend, he's one of those guys, people of faith, that believes God for everything, and he just said, God's going to heal you, you know, hang in there, and people were praying. So I went to a doctor's appointment, it seemed to go well, I just wanted to get a second opinion, so I went to a cardiologist, and passed every test, everything, and part of that prayer was, God, if if you will heal me, I'm going to serve you regardless, but this serving you with a healthy body, it's, I'm just going to renew my commitment to double up my effort, my energy, my service to you. So if I seem a little energetic sometimes, if I seem a little driven, if I seem a little passionate, now you know why. Um, last year God healed me and haven't had any problems with my heart since then. Amen. So, uh, but suffering is something that, um, amen, thank you. Suffering is something that we all go through. And it's not just physical level. Sometimes it can be emotional. Sometimes if you've had a negative experience in church, you're going to have spiritual suffering. And that's often the hardest to recover from because when you're, you're hurt on a soulish level, how do you recover? So today we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. And we're going to talk about suffering as a Christian. What does that look like? 
And is there significance in your suffering? Is there a purpose behind it all? Or are we just having aching back? Or are we just having challenges? Or are we having certain conditions that we, we don't know why? So today, Peter's going to tell us there is significance in your suffering as a Christian. So let's jump in verse 13. It says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, it's interesting. It says, who's going to harm you? And um, that, that's a good question because a lot of times as Christians we worry. You know, what, what if something bad happens, right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, doesn't that seem so counterintuitive? Like, the last time someone cursed you out for being Christian, you think, thank God someone cursed me out today. Um, the last time you had a health issue, thank God I'm suffering. I mean, it's like, why? But it says if you suffer because of righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And blessing is not just a temporary happiness, but blessing is, from an eternal perspective, you are well off and you're going to get better off. Someone ever asks you how you doing, you're like, I'm okay, under the circumstances. Well, it's like, what are you doing under there? What are you doing under the circumstances? But here's the thing, from an eternal perspective, even if you're having the worst day of your life, if you're a Christian, things are going to get better. Look at the person next to you and say, it's going to get better. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In this world, if, if you proclaim to be a Christian and you live your faith out loud, people will threaten you. People will say negative things about you, but it says don't worry about it. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That word sanctify is an old school word. It means set apart. And basically you could re- rephrase this as make Jesus Lord in your heart. Sanctify him. As the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. So if someone asks you why you're a Christian, says you need to be ready to explain why. But don't do it as in a prideful, arrogant way. Do it with humility. Do it with meekness. Do it in a spirit of fear. Alright, look at the next verse. It says, having a good conscience. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So in other words, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's for the right reasons. Don't bring it upon yourselves and then later blame God for your suffering. And then it gives an example. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. What's the reason? That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the spirit, in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Now here's where it gets bizarre. And that's why I said most pastors would skip this passage. It says, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And then in the next verse it says, there's also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having to be made subject to him. And some of you are scratching your head and like, what is that talking about? Well, I'm going to save that for the end, so you have to wrestle with what the scripture means. So let's talk about the surprise gift, how sometimes suffering... It's not something we would choose, but if it's the will of God for this season in life, if we're going through a hard time, if you're going through trials, 
If your boss at work is a non-believer and they don't like the fact that you're a Christian, if you're in college and because you claim to be a Christian, you don't get invited to the parties, whatever suffering looks like for you, um, is, is there a gift? I think there is. The first thing, if you'll follow along on your sermon notes, is hard times can actually be the best of times. Hard times can actually be the best of times. Many of you have heard of Alfred Nobel, and um, he's famous for what? Nobel Peace Prize. Well, it's quite interesting that in the year 1888, he woke up to see his name in the obituary. And he's like, what, what is going on? And it was actually his brother that had died, and for some reason thought it was Alfred. And in his obituary, this is the way the world saw him. They saw him as a person who invented dynamite. They saw him as a person that was of mass destruction. They did not see all the good that he did because he had invented dynamite, and this allowed for bridges to be built. This allowed for dirt to be moved and many lives to be saved. A lot of good things happened in his life, but the world saw him as a master of destruction. The master of destruction has died. Now, how would you feel if that was in your obituary, how the world saw you? That's pretty sad, right? So, Alfred Nobel decided, you know what, I'm going to change the trajectory of my life. And when, I, when my real death happens, I want people to see me differently. So, he had amassed $9 million fortune estate from his different inventions. He was a great inventor, not just dynamite, but he invented many other things. And he decided, I'm going to have this trust that from now on, whenever someone does something great in science or sociology, medicine, or the greatest prize was the Peace Prize, um, this $9 million state is going to go towards recognizing people in the world of greatest achievement. So, over 100 years later, when we think of him, do we think of a master of destruction, or do we think of master of peace? See, what happens when you go through experiences like he went through, you see things differently. And I would propose to you as a Christian, when you go through suffering, it allows you to see your life a little bit differently. Sometimes in this world, all sunlight and no rain gives what? It makes deserts, right? Sometimes the suffering and the trial, even though you wouldn't choose it, God allows certain things to happen to draw you closer to him. Let's look back in verse 13. It says, Who is he who harm you if you become followers of what is good? So, under, under your outline, listening guide, I'm going to give you four best-kept secrets for suffering. This is something that we don't really talk about because no one likes to talk about suffering. But here's the first best-kept secret. If you're a Christian, people may try to hurt you, but they can't truly harm you. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Verse 13 says, who's going to harm you? And this is talking about from an eternal perspective. As we talked about on Wednesday night, a Christian, you can't kill a Christian. You can only promote a Christian. If you were to take out my life right now, you may kill this body, but I'm still living in the presence of God. Amen? So from eternal perspective, you can try to hurt me, but you can't really harm me. Isn't that good news? No matter what happens. Jesus said it like this. Fear not the person who can take your body, and after that they have nothing else to do, but fear the one who can destroy your body and soul in hell. In other words, eternity is at stake. And that's what's really important. The second thing is this, when you suffer for doing good, God promises to reward you. Look at the next verse. 
It says, verse 14, but even if you should, should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Now that's, that's very counterintuitive. I'm blessed because I'm being persecuted, because I'm suffering. But it's saying if you're doing it for God, God's going to reward you. And there's a passage in Matthew where one of the apostles said, Jesus, we have left all this stuff to follow you. What do we have? And Jesus said, whoever has left houses, and he lists this whole list, he said he will receive a hundredfold. And you're like, what is a hundredfold? If you go, if any accountants in the room today, I know we've got a few. A hundredfold is 10,000%. So it's like you can't outgive what God's going to do. What he's promised us for now and for eternity, the suffering that you go are light and momentary compared to eternity. So suffering, if you redefine it as it's actually God's going to bless you for that, wow. Number three, your struggles can actually bring you closer to the Savior. Verse 15 says, but sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. So here's the thing. The last time you went through suffering, it's going to do one of two things to you. It's either going to draw you closer to God or you're going to choose to what? Go away from God. And for many of you, you've lost spouses, you've lost family members. And that's either going to do one of two things. It's either going to cause you to seek after God for peace and comfort, or you're going to turn from God. But suffering as a believer should allow you to say, listen, you know, God's using this. We live in an imperfect world. And God's going to bring good even out of a bad situation. Amen? You guys ever been asked the question, why do bad things happen to what? You know, I, I've heard that question a lot. And I'm wondering if we're asking the right question. Let me explain. First of all, we live in a fallen world. The Bible says that Satan is the temporary G-O-D of this world, small God. He's temporarily in charge. So think about it this. It, let's, let's put it in your business. If, if Satan was the president of a company, would you expect good things to happen in that company? Probably not, right? Death, destruction, company go bankrupt. So if Satan is temporarily making havoc of this world, maybe the question should be, why is anything good happening? You ever thought about that? Maybe good is happening simply because of the grace of God. So maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe it's not why do bad things happen to good people, but why is good happening? It's simply because of God's grace. So your struggles can bring you closer to God. It says that we're to separate Jesus as the Lord. C.S. Lewis said it like this, God whispers to us in the good times. But in the bad times, it's like his megaphone. And he speaks so clearly when we're going through hard times. Number four, this is really important. Your struggles can open up new opportunities for you to share your faith with others. Whenever you're going through suffering and you respond differently than everyone else around you, when you get fired from your job and you still have peace about it, when you're going through a financial crisis and you know God's going to provide, and people are like, why are you so at peace about this? Why are you not stressing out like everyone else? And you can explain to them the reason why you have this hope. Which brings a question. If someone came to you today and asked, how do I become a Christian, could you tell them how to? Don't raise your hand, but to think about it. Could you actually lead someone to faith in Christ? Or would that be a challenge? So this verse tells us, even if you're going through hard times, you still have to be ready to show the watching world that there's a hope that you have. Did you know that hope is your trump card? 
the Bible says that you have hope. And think about that. No matter what you're going through, you can have hope. Because here's the thing about this world. The world truly doesn't have hope. Because the world has expectations for today, but they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? But as Christians, we have true hope. Because yesterday, we know that God was there, and even if we went through hard times, He's going to bring good, even out of a what? Bad situation. Today, we know that He's the great I Am. He's with me today, and He's going to bring good things in my life today, because He's a loving Father. And even if you're going through hard times, He's going to give you a gift in the midst of that struggle. Amen? But not only that, it's three-dimensional hope. It's past, present, and it's future because no matter what, in the end, we know that we what? We win. And for the guys who uh, maybe checked out, this will give you a good analogy. Um, you ever watch a sports game when you already know the outcome? Isn't that encouraging? I've been watching the Golden State Warriors. Um, sorry if you're a Cavs fan. But I've been watching them um, beat the Cavs. And it's, sometimes I don't get to see the game because I don't have cable at my house. But I watch it afterward and I see the highlights. But if I already know the score that my team won, I'm not sweating it. And it's even better if I get to watch the full game after the fact. Because in the end, we win. So let me tell you the end of the story. Today you may be going through something difficult. Today you may be going through something challenging. Even if it's a health situation, a family situation, a personal crisis, depression, whatever. But if you're a Christian, that's the caveat, in the end you win. Does that give you hope? Somebody say amen. (laughs) All right, so that was just the first point. I better speed up things a little bit. Number two, here's the secret in experiencing victory in your struggles. Keep your heart pure and keep your conscience clean. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, having a good conscience, that while they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conscience in Christ may be ashamed. You know, when you fear God, you don't have to fear anyone or anything else. That's the greatest thing. A lot of times in this world we want independence, we want certain things, but the world can't give it. If you are completely dependent upon God, if you fear Him, do you have to fear anyone else? And that verse says, here's the secret in your struggle. You've got to keep your conscience clear. Just think about it. If you're going through suffering and you have guilt on your conscience, or you have regret, does it seem like the suffering's a lot harder to go through because you don't know why? But if you keep your heart pure, you keep your conscience clear, all of a sudden, it's like you have perspective even in the midst of your suffering. And you know that God is going to work this out, and He's going to bring good even out of this bad situation. Verse 17, it says it like this, For it is better... If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good. Now let me ask you a question. By this verse, is it sometimes, does God sometimes allow us to suffer? Yes, right? It's there. So for those of you who say, well, the Christian should never suffer, never go through any hard times, read verse 17. It says, sometimes, because we live in a fallen world, because things are the way they are, this side of eternity, there will be hard times. But if it's the will of God, it said it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So here's the thing. When you're suffering, you don't want to bring it on yourself. In other words, if I make a bad decision... By the way, did you know that we're all just one step away from stupid? 
Do you guys realize that? We're all just one single step from stupid. All of us. One bad decision. And you talk about suffering and bad decisions. I read this essay one time that really got my attention. It was an essay in this book. And it was about these two men that were both sick. And sick people, they don't want to be in the hospital, but these guys end up in this hospital. And they had this unusual condition where they both had to lay flat on their backs all day. They couldn't be around a lot of noise. They couldn't have TV ready or anything else. So they put these two guys in isolation away from the general ward in this particular hospital. It was a huge hospital. So day after day, these two men would talk about their lives. They'd talk about their wife and their children and all the vacation spots they traveled to. And one of the gentlemen sat next to a window that overlooked um, a certain area. And he would explain to the guy every day. He would sit up for an hour. They would allow the one guy next to the window to sit up for an hour. He had some fluid in his lungs that he had to drain. And this was, both of them, their favorite time of the day because the gentleman next to the window would explain, I see outside there's this beautiful park. And I see two teenagers holding hands to the park. And it looks like he's singing to her. And all of a sudden he would describe there's a baseball game over there in the field. And they're playing. It looks like this team's winning. And the next day there would be a wedding in the park. And day after day he would explain what was going on in the park outside of the window. And one day he, talked, he told the guy about a parade. He's like, you would not believe there's this parade and there's this crazy clown in it. And the guy that wasn't sitting next to the window, his bed wasn't in the window, he began to long for that one hour of day where he could hear what was going on outside. But over time, the guy who wasn't next to the window grew bitter because he's like, I should be next to the window because I'm missing out. I'm having to hear what this guy's seeing, but I'm totally missing it out. And over time, he grew bitter and bitter, and his health started declining. And the nurses didn't know why, but his health was going downhill. And all of a sudden, he was laying there in the midst of the night. This is the one who wasn't next to the window. And he heard the other gentleman coughing. And he kept coughing and coughing. And he tried to get the little call button from the nurse, but his hand couldn't reach it. And the other guy just laid there. In the morning, the nurse came in to give each gentleman their sponge bath and found out that the guy next to the window was dead. And he didn't say anything, so they they rolled the guy out, and the guy was by himself. And when he thought it was appropriate, he asked the nurse if he could switch beds to the bed next to the window. And after they tucked him in, made him feel comfortable, the nurse walked out, and he, with pain, sat up, and he looked out the window and realized it was a blank wall out the window. He could see nothing. So, in your suffering, sometimes people see beauty, and sometimes it turns people inward where they become jealous and resentful, and, and they, they do sometimes things they regret. And... I think it's not by coincidence the Lord led us to First Peter because, like I said, many churches don't talk about it because who likes to talk about suffering, right? But I think in this world we live in, it's so relevant. But I think the, the, the thought is, is that we have hope. Even if the worst possible case scenario as a Christian, you have hope. Amen? So, let's continue on in verse three, or point number three. Just as Jesus overcame all struggle, you too can be victorious. Are you guys ready to get in the passage that's kind of controversial and hard to understand? And <laughs> All right, I'm glad you are. So, it says, we'll read the verses together and then we're going to um, kind of break it down. Verse 18, 
It says, For as Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So, the question is, why did Jesus suffer? Can anybody tell me from that verse? It says, to bring us to what? To bring us to God. So the reason why Christ suffered is so that we could be brought to God. And sometimes the reason why God allows us to suffer, I think sometimes it brings us closer to God, but I think also sometimes it brings other people closer to God. Because if you're in the midst of a hard time and you still have peace, you still have hope, they're going to say, I want what he or she has. So that, that's, that's, that's a good thing to think about. Why? And I want you to think about it. Sometimes as a Christian, we suffer, and we don't understand why. And sometimes we'll never know why, this side of eternity. But I think the Bible gives us certain clues that even in the midst of challenging times and circumstances... Romans 8.28 comes together. God works out all things together for what? To good. Now, all things is good and bad. Great times and times of challenge. Because whenever you have Jesus in your life, he seems to add perspective to things. Several years back, I remember hearing this modern-day parable. And this parable was about this very wealthy estate owner. And he collected amazing paintings, Picassos and Rembrandts, and everything those who are into art love. He had all the collection of paintings. And one day, this wealthy estate owner got a phone call that his son had died in combat. And he was just so devastated. He was like, I can't believe my son, he, he, he perished. And he, his heart was just broken. And he went into depression for weeks. And a month after getting that phone call, a soldier came up to his door, knocked on the door, and he said, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the guy who your son saved. He saved many people that day, but he was carrying me to safety, and he got shot through the heart and died without suffering. Um, and I, I'm here today just to thank you for your son. And he had this large package in his hand, and the, the wealthy estate owner said, What is this, son? And he, he unwrapped it, and it was a picture of his son. The guy, he's like, I'm not a good painter. I know that you collect a lot of paintings. Your son used to talk about your Picassos and your Rembrandts and all your great paintings. I'm not a good painter, but this is the best I could do. And the father looked at the painting, and it just reminded him so much of his son. It, it reflected his personality. And he was amazed at how good a job the soldier had done. So he, hanged it above his, he hung it above his mantle. And every time he would show his friends and other people in the, the neighborhood his art pieces, he was always start by showing the son and say, this is my son. You know, he gave his life in combat. And uh, I met the guy that sa he saved. And he would talk all about his son. And then he would take him on to the Raphaels and Picassos and Rembrandts and so on. And in time, the wealthy estate owner died. And they did this huge auction. And people came from far and near to see what kind of paintings they could get. And all of a sudden, the auctioneer had the son's painting first. And he pointed, we're going to start the bidding with the son. And a guy in the second row said, I don't want the son. I want the Picasso and the Rembrandts and the great paintings, the Raphaels. Let's, let's go on. And the auctioneer said, hold up. We're going to start with the son, and we'll see where it goes from there. So he started the bidding really high. Can I have 500? 
silence. Can I have 400 silence? So finally the audience was just getting really disgruntled. And an old gentleman in the very back said, I'll give you $10. And because the auctioneer didn't want the crowd to get upset, he threw down his gavel and said, sold for $10 to the man in the back. What they didn't know is the man in the back was the gardener. And he loved the son. He had a great relationship with him. And that's all he could afford was $10. And the audience said, okay, let's get on with the real paintings. And the auctioneer looked over the crowd and said, sorry, the auction is closed. Because the landowner, whenever he had this estate written out, he had one stipulation. Whoever has the son gets it all. The entire estate and all the paintings. That gentleman got the son, so he has it all. And that parable really resonated with me. That you may come to Jesus with nothing. And we all come nothing spiritually. We all come as debtors. But if you have the Son, you have it all. Amen? How many of you are glad you got the Son today? So that helps you understand the significance even in the suffering. If you have the Son, you have it all. Okay, now let's get the controversial stuff. I saved the best for last, right? So, what does Jesus knowing the ark and the flood have to do with suffering? I'm glad you asked that question because I, 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 I'm as well. Uh, the first thing is this. The ark is a symbol of salvation. Just as Noah and the ark, when, whenever Noah and his family went on the ark, they were saved from the floodwaters, right? So the, the, the parallel is this. Whenever you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, that saves us from long-term destruction. As I said in the beginning of the sermon, People can hurt you, but they can't truly harm you. So Noah is a picture of salvation. The second one is this. The flood symbolizes a new start. The old world dying and the new world emerging. So in the same way, this passage, it doesn't say that baptism saves you. It simply says that baptism is a picture. That whenever you go under those waters and you come back out, the old Timothy is gone and the new Timothy is here. So... Peter uses baptism as an analogy that just as the floodwaters purify the earth, when you're in Christ, it's His blood that purifies you, but baptism is the symbol of what Jesus has done. The old life is gone and the new life has come. So on a practical note, if you, if you have been saved and you've never been baptized after your salvation experience, you haven't gone to first base yet. Because that's actually the first command in Scripture. Jesus said, repent and be baptized, right? So, it's, it's almost like this. My wife over here, Lori, we've been married, was it seven years this summer? Okay, I'm glad I didn't get that wrong. So, uh, as the years go on, you may forget. All the guys said, amen. So, imagine if I said, okay, Lori, we're going to get married, but there's going to be no ceremony. I don't want anyone to know about it. We're going to do an underground wedding. It's just you and I and God, and that's all that matters. I'm not ashamed of you or anything. I just... You know, it's too much stress and I have to get up in front of everybody and I don't want people to see. And What do you think my wife would say? <laughs> you don't want to know what she'd say. She wouldn't like it. So here's the thing. It's the equivalent of you come to Jesus Christ and say, hey, I want to receive you, but I don't want to get baptized. I have to get my hair wet. My mascara's running down for you ladies. Uh, for you guys, you're like, you know. But it's a picture. It's a symbol. 
And you don't want to miss out. This is something so beautiful. And it's symbolic that your old life is gone and you're, you're a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this. If anyone is in Christ, any man, any woman, they are a brand new creation. The old life is gone and behold, the new life has come. And baptism symbolizes that. All right, number three. Both Noah and Jesus proclaimed a message. Now, here's where the scripture, let me read it to you because it gets a little bizarre here. It says that, verse 19, that by whom, talking about by the Spirit, Jesus went and preached the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient. And when the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, and um, it goes on to say, so it's like, who did Jesus preach to? Like, what's going on? So basically the question is, what happened between Friday evening and Sunday morning? You know, you guys ever ask that question with Jesus on the cross? And what happened? Well, I'll tell you some things that happened and some things that didn't happen. One thing that didn't happen is Jesus did not suffer in hell. Some denominations have taught that Jesus was suffering in hell. Well, Scripture clearly says that Jesus suffered how many times? One time. The just for the unjust. On the cross, he said, it is what? finish. So he did not go to hell to suffer after already suffering on the cross. So I'll just say that didn't happen. Um, so he did basically two things. The best theologians reading the description of the passages. There's a passage in Ephesians that talked about him descending in the lower parts. He did two things. Number one, he gave a royal proclamation. And this is, refers to the spirits in prison. Many theologians think this is talking about, this is basically Jesus saying, Satan, all you demons, guess what? I've defeated you. Give me those keys. I am victorious. He proclaimed his victory over sin, Satan, hell, and the grave. Amen? So when a Christian dies, guess what? Satan doesn't have the keys. Jesus is God. He's saying, I'm victorious. That's why you can hurt a Christian, but you can't harm a Christian. Because Jesus has the keys. The second thing that many theologians did is, before Christ, you know, we all have to receive Christ to make it to heaven, right? So the question is, what about those who die in faith before Christ? Well, many people believe that when Jesus defeated hell, death, and the grave, that he proclaimed himself to those who had died in faith. The Bible says that they were in Abraham's bosom. So basically, he was filling in the blanks that, you know, you saw the coming Messiah, I am him, and there's good news. You're going to be in heaven with me forever now. And he filled in the blanks of those who died in faith. Now, here's what it does not mean, because denominations get very confused, and some of you may have been taught this, but here's the first thing it does not mean. There's no second chances after death. This life is the only life we have to receive Christ. So you don't get a second chance after you go, you, you go beyond. The second one is we don't need to say prayers for the dead. Sometimes if you've been in certain denomination, you pray for the dead, departed. How many of you grew up in a church like that or have background. Some of you may. But think about it. After you're gone, this is the only life we have to receive Christ. So you can't pray for those who didn't receive Christ to receive Christ. They're already, this is the only life. And then for those who are gone into heaven, they're much better off than you or I are. So you don't have to offer up prayers for the dead. And the final thought before we move on to the final point is this life is not the end of us. That's good news for the Christian. This life is not the end. We live, we live beyond. So those are three things of what you can make from this complicated passage. 
And the final picture that emerges is this. And this is on your outline. We have a picture of victory even in the midst of suffering. What happened to Noah after the flood? He emerged and the flood was gone and he went on dry land and lived his life. Jesus, after his death, what happened? He rose. So the the victory is this. No matter what happens to you here on earth, the worst possible case scenario, you and I have victory in Christ. Amen? And a reference for that, if you want to write it down, it's Romans 8, 31 through 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let me give you one more story and we're finished. Um, I was talking to David Reed back in the back and I was like, remind my memory. He was one of my high school teachers. And we were a very small Christian school. Probably the whole school, Mr. Reed would say 50 kids, K through 12, very small Christian school. But we were able to pull off a basketball team somehow every year. It was middle school, high school guys, and we'd compete against teams that were three times better than us. But we had a few really good guys on the team. This one guy, he was a point guard, and, I mean, he could score 30, 40 points in a game. I mean, he was the Steph Curry before Steph Curry was popular. I mean, he could just nail shots. And so one year we went to state competition, and we lost. But the good news is the people that won first and second place didn't go to compete internationally. So guess what? They gave us the wild card. How many of you like wild card spots in football? Especially if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. You, you pray for the wild card to come through. Hey, no haters out there, right? So we went to compete against all these teams from all around the world. There were, I think, 66 teams approximately. And we were the worst positionally because we shouldn't even be there. And um, we, we, we scrimmaged against this team from Florida, and they, they, they humiliated us. We were horrible. They realized we probably shouldn't be there, and that was a scrimmage. So whenever we started the competition, our first competition was against California. And this team was so good. I mean, they could hit all these shots, but every little ragtag team rallied together, and we're like, well, I'm going to show you Appalachian defense like you've never seen it, go Tar Heels. I mean, we were playing our hearts out, and guess what? We won. And I'm like, this team out of Appalachia, no good. We beat this, this championship team from California. So, 66 teams, a single elimination. There's only like 30-some teams left. And the team we played next was the team from, you might want to guess it, Florida. And they had already demolished us in practice. But we're like, you know what, we're going to leave it all on the floor, guys. Come on. I'm not sure if any of us gave that motivational speech, but I could see, you know, come on, guys, let's just give it all you've got. Lay it here. We're going to tell our kids and grandkids about this one day. This is the last stand. And we played our hearts out. And it, it came down to the last minute. And we beat them. Mr. What was it, a point or two? We barely came out and won at the buzzer. I mean, it was like the last minute. And it was like this team that was horrible in comparison to the other championship teams made it to the Sweet 16. And that story goes to show you may be going through something horrific right now in your family or your friends. But if you know that you're not fighting for victory, you're fighting from victory, it allows you to play the game with peace and joy. It allows you to know that, you know what, I'm going to be okay. Because you may try to hurt me, but you can't harm me. So these are some principles of encouragement in the midst of suffering. How many of you are encouraged today? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we read your word and we're like, wow, this is um, a complicated scripture. But God, sometimes the most complicated scriptures give us the most beautiful, 
golden nuggets. And I pray that today we got the golden nugget that, you know what, as a Christian, I've already got victory. I'm not fighting for victory. I'm already fighting from it because I know the end. We win. And right now, just with no one looking around, how many would say, Pastor Timothy, you know, I know someone in my life, it could be you, it could be a family member, a friend that's going through some sort of suffering, whether it be physical, financial, spiritual, family situation. I bet you, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anyone at all? I see those hands. Father, you see the hands of those who are sufferers, those who are going through difficult times with themselves or their family. Help them know that there's significance in their suffering if they will just see the Savior who's with them in the fiery furnace, just like He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father, help them see that. And finally, if there be one here today that hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're willing to say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, He was buried, He rose again, and I want to surrender my life to Him, Pray a prayer of faith in your own words, something like this. Jesus, I need to receive you as my Lord and Savior. I no longer want to do this life on my own. Please forgive me of all my sins. I believe that you died, you were buried, and you rose again. And Jesus, I give my life to you. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, I want to talk to you after the service. We want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you for the surprise gift of suffering. And the surprise gift, Father, is this. That God is with me, and He's for me, and He loves me no matter what. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.